teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Today's text from God's Word is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. As we're doing throughout this series, I'm actually going to be teaching 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So it's two whole chapters. I'm just going to read these five verses. They seem to summarize kind of what we're going to be getting at the best uh, to picture this point in David's life. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. They'll be up here on the screen. And as always, you can uh, follow along in your Bible, and especially during this series, it's really helpful if you've got your Bible open so you can kind of follow through the story. Hear now the word of your Creator and your Redeemer. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. In the, the 1960s, from 1963 to 1967, there was a popular TV show named The Fugitive. And many of us would remember the movie starring Harrison Ford just a few years ago. And in the TV show and in the movie, there was an innocent man, a doctor, who was convicted of murdering his wife. And on the way, actually, to receive the death penalty, there was a train wreck, and he escaped, and he got away, and the whole show was him fleeing and moving around the country, being pursued by the law who was chasing him. So he spends his life on the run, trying to escape the law, even though he himself is innocent. And I thought of this show in this movie because it is probably the most modern, uh, most accurate picture from our modern storytelling that goes back to this period in David's life. Because if you want to summarize where David is at, at this period in his life, late in the book of 1 Samuel, David is a fugitive. And he's an innocent fugitive. He's done nothing to cause the wrath of King Saul to be after him. But nonetheless, unjust Saul, who is circling down ever and ever further and further into madness and wickedness is trying to get David. So the question is going to be, how is David going to respond at this point in our story? What will he do? So let's dive into our text. Now, again, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And remember in 1 Samuel 20, David had been with Jonathan. They had made a covenant together and then in the very next verse, we read in 1 Samuel 21, 1, that David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him, and he asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So David knows Saul is trying to kill him, and so he flees. And the first place he thinks to go is to the priests of Yahweh. 
and there is no temple in Jerusalem yet, so the, the, the priestly families have been moving around a number of towns in Israel, and they are at Nob at this point, and so he shows up there. But the priest knows who David is, but we, we should not misunderstand. He doesn't know there's anything going on between David and Saul. He just knows David is a mighty man, and so he's a little bit afraid when David shows up, just like when Samuel shows up in places in this book. Everybody gets afraid, like, what's going on here? And so Ahimelech's nervous, and he's particularly nervous because he's used to seeing David with a whole group of warriors around him, but all of a sudden, David's by himself. There's nobody there, and David's not only not coming with a, a retinue of soldiers, he has no armor, he has no weaponry, he seems to have nothing. So Ahimelech's like, why, why are you in this state? And David here has a choice. He's at a fork. Is he going to be honest and tell Ahimelech what's going on and the help he needs, or is he going to lie? And David is fearful and he doesn't know what the priest is going to do because this priest's family has been serving with Saul as well. And so he makes up a lie about a mission from the king. And he uses very vague language. He doesn't say King Saul. He just says from the king. And he says, and you know, there's no men with me because I'm supposed to go to such and such a place and meet such and such a man is pretty much how the Hebrew reads. It's extremely vague is what David is saying. And just hold this little point in mind because this little white lie is going to cause huge problems later on in the story as we're going to read. It's going to cause big, big problems because David says this. Because while he's saying this, one of Saul's servants, Doeg the Edomite, is sitting there watching what is going on. But David at this point, what he's doing is he needs to get supplies. So he asks for and receives both food and weaponry. And David receives actually the bread. I won't throw all these verses up, but he asks for some food, and the priest says, well, all I've got is actually the bread of the presence, which is part of our worship. We have to put bread out before Yahweh, and then when we replace it with fresh bread, the priests get to eat the bread. Nobody else is allowed to eat it unless you're a priest. But long as you and the men you're going to be with, David, are clean, I'll go ahead and kind of make an exception to the rule and I'll give it to you. Jesus actually brings this up. You can read about it in the New Testament and says this was a proper thing for the priest to do. That ceremonial provision was not as important as meeting David's needs. So David receives bread and then the priest says, well, we're a group of priests. We don't have a bunch of weapons. The only weapon we've got, as a matter of fact, is the sword that you took from Goliath when you killed Goliath when you were a young man. We have that. So you can have holy bread and you can have Goliath's sword. And I want to point out, it's really important to understand, this is while David is acting in fear rather than faith, and while David is in the midst of lying to this priest. Now, the reason I bring this up is, and it's essential for us to understand, even when you fail Yahweh, even when you are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Even when you sin and you fall short, and we do sin and fall short, God is faithful towards us. And we are going to be seeing here in David's life, so often everybody presents David as like this huge paragon of virtue, and David does everything right except for the one little thing with Bathsheba. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. We are going to see next week 
David is alternating between being a mighty man of faith and being a guy who keeps falling into sin, who keeps getting himself into trouble, and God has to keep rescuing him. The Bathsheba incident is not the only incident. It, in fact, is one of a long, 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 long series in the life of the man after God's own heart. And it is imperative that we understand this. The gospel is not be faithful to God and he will be faithful to you. The gospel is you've not been faithful to God, but he's still been faithful to you. The gospel is not the good news is that you do as much as you can and God will kind of polish and finish up the rest. It's that all you're bringing to the equation and all I'm bringing to the equation is our sin. But God has done more than enough. God's grace is greater than our sin. So in the midst of David's struggles, God provides for him and he provides for him holy food and he provides for him the sword of Goliath because that's the way our God works. Now, David at this point takes the bread and he takes the sword and we might think, well, maybe this is going to remind him. He's got Goliath's sword. Maybe this is going to be a reminder to David of the faithfulness of God. But in fact, David kind of goes from bad to worse and we read in, in 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 12 that David then flees to the Philistines, okay? And we're told that day he flees from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, if you remember, who's the, only, who's the other person we know that was from Gath? Goliath. So I want you to think with me for a second, what, what is David thinking his end game is here going into Gath? He can only be thinking one of two things. Either they're not going to know who I am, which might I point out is not very likely. You killed their big guy. You're probably going to be known. Or he's going to try and hire himself out as a mercenary. In which case, who are the Philistines mainly fighting? So who's David likely to be fighting? Can I point, there's, there's no good possible outcome to this mess. There really is not. And I hate to say David's gonna do this again later and get himself in an even bigger mess and God's gonna have to deliver him because he's about to go out and fight against Israel. And so David is there and he's doing this and it doesn't work, however, because notice in verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David? The king of the land, isn't he the one that they sing about in their dances? Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's pretty interesting. The advisors, who do they say David is? The king. The whole reason we're in this mess is because the one person that won't recognize David as the king is Saul who ought to be recognizing that David's the king, but he won't. But a bunch of pagan Philistines, speaking better than they know, they say this guy's the king. And, and look, I mean, the people are saying about how he's slain everybody, and by the way, that was when he killed Goliath that they started saying this. So these guys are pointing this out, and they're like, Achish, we, we, we don't want this guy around here. Well, suddenly David, in verse 12, says he took these words to heart, and he's very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So David starts saying, this is not going the way I had planned. I'm now realizing this was a really bad idea, which all of us can recognize. Have you ever woken up in the midst of your sin and thought, how did I get here? Okay, that's where David's at. And so then in verses 12 and 13, we read this. David's got to figure out how to get out of trouble, so he does this. 
David took these words to heart. He's very much afraid. And so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So David says, the only way I can get out of this is I've got to act like a madman. Now, the word there for acting like a madman or acting insane, the word is also used for somebody who's really, really drunk, and they're stumbling around like a drunken sot. And so it may be that he thinks David's literally like crazy, or it may be that he thinks David has just had way too much to drink and is a crazy drunk on his hands. But in either way, this is what David is having to do. Now, I hope you see in the story that this guy's a master storyteller. As the the writer of Scripture's writings, he's a master storyteller because we've got King Saul, the king, is actually going mad, and he's losing his grip on reality. At the same time, however, David, who's not mad, who's very accurately (laughs) grasping the situation, is acting like he's losing his mind, and he's going crazy because, in a sense, David's gotten himself into a big mess. He's gotten himself into a mess like Saul has done, and so David's having to act like Saul actually is, and it's a pretty huge bit of irony, but it actually works. Once again, God is gracious to David because Achish looks and says, look, I got enough people like this in my own town. I don't need to start importing them from Israel. This is not what we're looking for here. Get this guy out of here. Now, David is learning something because Achish wants him gone. And out of this experience, I want you to see David starts writing as writing Psalms. Psalm 34 that I quoted at the beginning of the meeting, you know, I will continually praise the Lord. Uh, Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Uh, that is written, we're told, the, the heading to those, that psalm says it was written when David feigned insanity or madness before Achish, the king of Gath. There's some other verses you're probably familiar with in Psalm 34. For example, in verses 6 to 8, we read, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is not David just saying, you know, I think I need to write something spiritual today. This is David saying, I was really dumb. I got myself in big trouble but Yahweh was faithful. This poor man called and the Lord heard and God delivered me. And I realize now the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. I did not need to go running off to Achish, the king of Gath. What I needed to do was taste and see that the Lord is good. And he goes on in the following verses and says, here, if you want to live a good life and a long life, here's what you need to do. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil, do good. All of this is in Psalm 34. So once again, what we're seeing here is the kindness and faithfulness of Yahweh. Though David has acted unwisely, Yahweh is faithful to his covenant promises and he delivers David. This is the gospel. Because that's exactly what you and I do. Have you ever found yourself feigning madness in front of King Achish? 
If you're honest, you have. You find yourself in places where it's like, how did I get in this mess? And the more I move, the more it sticks to me like flypaper all over me. And the good news is, even in the midst of that, if you will cry out to God, he hears. He delivers this poor man from all of my enemies, from all of my fears. And that's what we need to see over and over. David, we're going to see, is sometimes faithful and sometimes not. Yahweh is always faithful. And he has plans and purposes for David, and he's going to fulfill them. And let me tell you, that's a bit of good news that God's plans and purposes do not depend on me and my faithfulness. He will accomplish them. I'm privileged when he uses me to be part of that. You're privileged when he uses you to be part of that. But whether we're faithful or not, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to do that here as well. So now, what happens to David is he gets away from Achish, but then this is where we come to the, the section that I read this morning, and we see David goes into a period of being a complete fugitive. He's fled to Nob, he's fled down to the Philistines, and then we read in 1 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, which is the very next verse, David left Gath and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader and about 400 men were with him. So David has to flee the Philistines, but he doesn't go back to Saul. He goes off to a wilderness cave. And then his family shows up and joins him. And, and we need to see this would be both encouraging and discouraging to David. What's encouraging is they're no longer saying, oh, you're just a little shepherd. Where are you with the few sheep? They now are realizing David is the guy. And so that's encouraging. Of course, it's discouraging because David realizes my problems are their problems. Saul will not stop with me. They have to come down here and leave everything they've got because Saul's after me. And if he can't get me, he'll go after them. And if you put yourself in that place, who would want that to come upon your, particularly your elderly parents? It would be grief to me if my parents had to spend the last years of their life fleeing for their life with me because of someone else's hatred for me. And that's what David is dealing with. But then there's this great thing that happens, which is, Picture this, you're going out to start a new business, you're going out to plant a church, something great, and here's what God gives you. Everyone who's in distress, debt, discontented, and they gather around you. I mean, is this not a great band? I mean, David's bound to say, this is awesome. This is exactly who I would want. If you're distressed, if you're in hock up to your eyeballs, if you're a total malcontent and nothing is good in life and you can complain about anything, come be with me, okay? Now, in a sense, this reminds me a lot of David's greater son, Jesus, because who did Jesus get for disciples? I've mentioned this before. I'm sure there were some evenings of prayer, like seriously, Father. I mean, we've been planning this from like since eternity, and, and this is what I've got. I mean, look at this crew around me, okay? David is looking, and this is what he's got, and he's got 400 of these people, and they're like, you lead us. David is saying, I didn't even have a loaf of bread. I've got one sword. I was acting like a whack job from the Philistines, and now I'm out in a cave. I still have nothing, but I got a bunch of you who brought all your problems with you. Okay, that's what he's doing, and this is what God is doing. 
Now, how many of you realize if you come to David at that moment and say, how's this thing about Samuel anointing you to be king working for you? How far are you from 1 Samuel 16? You can do it in like two pages in your Bible. Man, this guy has gone as far as the east is from the west in his experience. Even closer in, how far are we from Goliath? You come at me with sword and spear. I come at you in the name of Yahweh, the king of hosts. Now I'm sitting in a cave looking around at 400 malcontents. This is what I've got. Experientially, this is a long way from there. But Yahweh is at work because David needs to understand. Let me tell you just a piece of advice. It is easy when you're flush with the victory over Goliath, but God has a way of taking you out into a wilderness cave before he's going to get you to do what he wants you to do. Uh, you know, that, that's a principle to learn. Another man used to put it and say from the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel, never person Trust a person who doesn't walk with a limp. You got to spend time in the cave. You just do. It's the way that God works. Now, be honest. If you're saying, amen, that's awesome, I'm looking for my cave. No, you're not. No, you're not. I, I, I prefer the I'm holding Goliath's head up phase. I prefer the oil running down on my head and the great prophet saying, you the man. I don't like... This is what I got to work with, Lord. This is where we're at, huh? This is what we're doing. But it is part of the way that God works. And so notice then David, as bad as that seems, notice what happens then. We read in verses 3 to 5 that he's like, okay, I got my parents. They're old. They can't be living in this cave. So he goes down to Moab. He has to go back outside the covenant people. And the reason he goes to Moab is because great-grandmother Ruth was from Moab. So this is another thing where it's like, okay, generations ago, this is where we came out of, and I'm all the way back here now because I'm trying to get somebody to watch over my parents. He then, we're told in verse 4, goes back to a stronghold. It could be that he's back in a duel, but it doesn't appear so because he's going to be told to leave. So he's back in another stronghold. He's got all these guys with him. And then the prophet Gad, we're told, is apparently with David. And he says in verse 5, do, uh, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. Gad is warning David, you're not safe here. You've got to pick up and flee again. And if you look, here's a map of David's wanderings that's coming up. It, the part you can see that's in a, a darker red there is everywhere David is wandering in this story. Okay, that's a lot of wandering. Here's the bad news. The part in pink is where he still is going to have wandering before he ever sits his backside on the throne. Okay? This guy is a fugitive. It is place to place to place. And every time he goes, God is working and shaping and molding more. And David is learning both through success but just as often through failure who God wants him to be. Now, at this point in the story, everything seems hopeless. David's not the king. He's a fugitive fleeing from place to place with a motley band of malcontents. That's where we're at, okay? However, the, the writer presses pause. We go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we're not with David in the cave with his band of malcontents. We're now back with Saul. 
because Saul's continuing on, and here's a bit of bad news. Saul is going from bad to worse. The mad, wicked king is there, and I want you to see the contrast between the two. Saul is a king sitting in regal splendor. Consider how different the picture we're given of Saul is than from David, starting in verse 6. First, we hear that Saul had heard that David and his men had been discovered. So Saul now knows where David is at. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree at the hill at Gibeah with all of his officials standing around him. So notice how different this is from David. Saul sitting with spear in hand, his spear, his sign of authority and power, David had to go borrow a sword from the priest. Saul is surrounded by his royal officials, the hand-selected people from all of Israel to be with him. David has 400 debt-ridden, discontented men with him. Saul uh, is sitting there. Notice he says in verse 7, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Now, what this means is, does Saul have fields and vineyards to give away? Yes, he does. You serve me, I can give you fields and vineyards, and you can build a family estate. You serve David, you get to flee from cave to cave to cave. Never sure where you'll lay your head down the next night. Uh, Saul, notice he also says, will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? You serve me faithfully and you're good. I'll give multiple ones of you charge of different armies of a thousand men apiece. David doesn't have armies and armies and armies of thousands. He's got 400 unproven, debt-ridden, discontented malcontents. That's what he's got. The picture that the author is painting, they're in complete opposite places. If you just bang, came in there and you saw David and then you went bang and saw Saul and you said, who's in a better spot? You say, well, Saul. I like where Saul's at. That's a better place to be. Except for Yahweh's with David in the cave and he's left Saul on his throne. And so Saul, in fact, in spite of all of that, is descending further and further into madness and wickedness. In verse 8, we read, he's telling all these guys, he says, is this why you have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Now, I'm sure none of them did because Saul's sitting there with spear in hand, and they've watched that spear before. But one of them might say, um, Saul, how do you know he made a covenant with, the, with David? If you don't know he did, why are you accusing us about it? And if you do know he did, you probably know it because one of us told you. How, how else do you know? It's, it's certain Jonathan didn't come back and say, hey, Dad, guess what I did today? I made a covenant with David. Because if you notice, who's not here at this part of the story? Jonathan's not there. He and Dad aren't even together right now. So these guys have probably told Saul what's going on, but that doesn't matter to Saul. Notice what he says. Uh, none of you is concerned about me. Now, they might point out, well, then why the heck do you think we're here with you if we're not concerned about you? Then he goes on and says, none of you tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Now, let's flash to the truth. Who's actually trying to kill whom in this story? Saul. Saul's chasing David everywhere, but what in Saul's fevered mind, I'm sitting here in grave danger because David's lying around every corner with Jonathan trying to kill me. It's the complete opposite of the truth. 
David's fleeing for his life, but Saul imagines that David is this mighty guy waiting in any minute he's going to take Saul's life. Now, the reason for this to help us grasp where we're at in the story for Saul is those playing the game of thrones are never secure. You resist the will of Yahweh, you will never find security. In fact, what you will find is you are uneasy and you imagine the worst and you end up projecting your own sin onto other people. Who's conspiring? It's Saul. But he's saying David's conspiring. Who's lying in wait to kill someone? It's Saul. But he's imagining that David is doing it. Who is not faithful to whom standing around that tree? It's Saul's not faithful to them. He will cut these guys loose in a second. He's got the spear. They have seen him hurl at people time and time again. But he's blaming them for being that way. Is that not what our sin does? When I get trapped in my sin, I will start projecting that sin onto other people. And if I am unfaithful, I will claim everybody around me is unfaithful. If I am a liar, I will claim everybody else around me lies. That is the nature of our sin. But Saul's engaged in the game of thrones, and he's not going to give up. And so what happens then is Saul's going to go on and bring the priests of Yahweh into this. And this is where we go back to that guy Doeg the Edomite who had been there and watched David. Well, Doeg jumps up at this point in verses 9 and 10, and he says, I saw the son of Jesse. And notice they never refer to David by name here. It's always they're, they're doing it to discredit him. He's just the son of Jesse. I saw that son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, the son of Ahotub, at Nob, as the priest. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, and he also gave him provisions in the sword of Goliath, uh, the Philistine. So notice what Doeg is doing is he's stoking all of Saul's worst fears. He doesn't tell him everything that David made up this story, he, he makes it sound like the, the priest set this guy up with some kind of an army or something else. It's like he gave David back the sword that David killed Goliath with. Remember, when you were all afraid, he went and struck Goliath down and took that sword. He just got that sword back, and he got a couple loaves of bread. That's what actually went on. But Doag makes it sound like, hey, the priests all conspired with them in there. They are there working against you, Saul. Now, why does this happen? Not only when I'm playing the game of thrones do I project my sin onto others. You know who will always be there? There will always be somebody to be there to confirm my worst fears, to stoke my fears, and to strengthen my sin. You can count on it. Get trapped in your sin. Don't want to repent and come to God. There will always be somebody that will stir that up and strengthen your sin. It's exactly what we do. Because when I'm hardening myself in sin, like tends to attract like. And so that's what Doeg is doing. So Saul then accuses the priests of conspiracy in verses 11 to 13. But then the priest speaks to him because he summons them to him and they, he says, you know, you guys are conspiring against me. And the priest speaks very reasonably. Ahimelech says in verse 14, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? Says, all I know is David's been a loyal servant. You keep sending him out on battles. He secondly says, uh, and he's your son-in-law. I mean, you're acting like I was just helping some random guy. He's your son-in-law. You, I'm, I'm not in the habit of turning down the king's family when they come ask for stuff, especially one who's got a spear in his hand. That's not a good way to live 
a long and prosperous life. So your son-in-law came, I gave him something. And in fact, your son-in-law is the captain of your bodyguard. He's the guy who stands around you and protects you. So I just assumed you sent your son-in-law, your loyal servant, the captain of your bodyguard down to me. And he's highly respected in your household. And Saul, you're asking about me inquiring of the Lord for him. Is this the first time I ever did that? Hasn't David come down before on things where I've done this exact same thing? Saul, what are you talking about? I don't know anything, and the Hebrews, I, I know nothing whether little or great, not from, from, from hell below to heaven above. I, I have no clue what you're talking about, Saul. I don't have any idea what's going on here. Sorry. Now, you would think at this point that Saul would say, well, those are all really good points. I'm sorry. Is that what we do when we are rushing headlong into sin? I mean, th th there is no... I don't know about anger, but I read about it in a book one time. <laughs> and those who struggle with anger, you can make extremely reasonable arguments, and there is to be no amens from my wife or children at this point. And yes, <laughs> and they can be less than reasonable at that moment. They can say craziness because what matters is winning. Okay, what matters is winning. Yes. <laughs> I notice other people aren't asking me to preach, Kelby. They're asking me to move on. Um, so we can sit here and be shocked at Saul, but is it not just like us? Because what Saul does is he doesn't give in to what Ahimelech says. In fact, he jumps up and says, you're going to die. You're going to die, Ahimelech. You and your family, I've had enough of this. And in verse... Uh, Go on in verse 17, that's in verse 16. In verse 17, the rest of the people look at Saul and they're like, <laughs> I'm not killing a priest. There's no way I'm doing that. I mean, I'm, I'm with you, but I'm not doing that. I might even go after David. I am not going after the priest. There is no way. But there's one guy who says, I'll do it. Doeg, the same guy that's stoking his fears, that's strengthening his senses. You want some priests dead? I'll kill the priest. And notice what Doeg does in verse 17 and 18, or verses 18 and 19. The, the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Now, what I want to point out to you is, and, and the writer doesn't completely say it here, but this priestly family is from the family of Eli. All the way back when Samuel was there, a man of God came down to Eli and his family because they were unfaithful, and they were mocking the worship of God. And God had told them all the way back in 1 Samuel 2, the day's going to come when you're going to stop serving me as a priestly family, and you'll have no one left to stand before me. Saul, doing everything he can to fight against the will of God, is actually fulfilling the very word of God that God had predicted. Because let me tell you something. You can fight against God all you want. You can play the game of thrones with the greatest skill of any human being. In the end, you will fulfill God's word and God's will. There's no getting around it, which is why there's only one real rule to the game of thrones. Don't play. Withdraw. <laughs> Admit you are way outmatched. So that's what's going on. But then notice what he says in verse 18. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men, 
and women, it's cat, children and infants, and it's cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Now, the reason that it's pointing out that this is going on is that's what Saul was supposed to do to the Amalekites. And he had not done that. And that's why Saul lost the throne. But what he was not willing to do to the enemies of God's people, he was willing to do to the priestly family. This is where Saul's at. Would not do it to the Amalekites, lost the throne, is still struggling against God, and the overflow of his sin is what he wouldn't do to the Amalekites. He's now done to the very priest of God. Wiped them out, wiped out everything they own. Saul simply will not submit to Yahweh. And whatever that cost, that's the way it will be. Because play in the game of thrones always leads to further sin and to tragic consequences. And the only path out is repent. At any point, Saul should have just said, I'm done. I'm not going. This is too far. I will not slay the priest of Yahweh. I am certainly not going to wipe out the entire priest family. I am not going to go down to the town and wipe out everything that I was supposed to do to the Amalekites. Do them. But at every point, Saul just pushes further in. And if we're honest, we've all been at that place ourselves. Now, what happens then is we find out one priest escapes. And that's Abiathar. And in verses 20 to 23, he comes down to David. And notice in, uh, he tells David what's gone on in verse 21. He told David, Saul killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Now, I want you to notice here, here's another contrast with David and Saul. Who really bears primary responsibility for slaying the priests? It's Saul. Is Saul accepting any of it? No, 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 no. You deserve this. David does have responsibility, but it's minor responsibility. But what is David's response? This is my fault. If I had not lied, if I had not sinned the way I did, this would not have happened to your father's family. It is my fault. Because see, here's the difference. Those playing the game of thrones will accept no responsibility. But those submitted to the will of Yahweh own up to their sin. Simply do. And the only way out is to own up. We're going to see this time and time again. Saul will never own up and admit his sin. David will confess and repent of his sin. And so he is forgiven and restored by Yahweh time and again. And so this is what we see that, that is happening. Those who hide their sin keep descending further and further into sin and madness, but those who confess and repent find forgiveness and they find freedom in Christ. That's a principle for you and I. When we sin, what do we need to do? Confess, repent, don't hide it. There's no prospering and hide it. Confess and repent. Now, what this means is we're going to do this, and today we're not going to do applying the word. This is going to kind of be the section. We're going to come to the Lord's table. I want you to see the picture we're being presented here with David the fugitive is, oddly enough, we have a stable 
fugitive and an unstable king. Everything is reversed of what we would think it would be. Consider this. Saul has all the trappings of power, but he feels completely threatened. David is actually threatened, but he's secure and says, the angel of the Lord's encamping around me and watching over me. Saul accuses, he threatens, and he alienates everyone around him while David is beginning to gather the seeds of a faithful band of loyal followers. We find out later the story of David ends in the book of Samuel. You get to 2 Samuel 23, and it lists all of David's mighty men. And guess when many of those mighty men joined David? They're the 400 motley followers. God is forging a mighty band that will be with David, that will serve David, that will deliver David, that will serve and deliver the people of God for a generation. But right now, they just look like a motley crew in the wilderness. Saul has everything around him, and it's all crumbling as he stands there. Saul is king but is moving further and further away from Yahweh. David is a fugitive, but is drawing ever closer to Yahweh. Many of the Psalms are written at this time. Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 56 and 7, I think it is. Many of the Psalms, David does not usually write Psalms when things are going well. Usually, David, when things are worse externally, David is drawing closer to God internally. And I hate saying that. I really do. It's not a big amen point, but it's a true point. Notice Saul is experiencing outward favor, but inward alienation from God. David, on the other hand, is experiencing outward difficulties that is producing inward communion with God. The fugitive is stable in the wilderness while the king is unstable in the royal palace seated on his throne. You can't get bigger contrast than what the writer And by the way, just enjoy when you read how they tell the stories in scripture. These guys are master storytellers. Pay attention and enjoy what they're doing. And I want you to see that all of this foreshadows, the same principle runs deeply because it foreshadows later. Can you think of any other time when those who sit on royal thrones are threatened by those who would appear to be powerless like maybe a newborn child? And a king would rage in madness and anger and be willing to slay entire villages of children to try and get the one, but God has protected the child. And even had the child have to go to Egypt, the historical enemy of God's people, and says, even in Egypt I can protect my child while the king rages on. Or while a man like Pontius Pilate sits and dares to judge his very creator, but in, the, in that pr precise moment where Jesus seems powerless, he's actually ruling and reigning over all things and says you would have no power except for God had given it to you. All of this foreshadows that because we see it over and over again in Scripture. And what it points out to us, I'm going to summarize it by a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce said this. You can see it here. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Here what Lewis is saying. It's a fearful thing. My will be done is not a thing needs to be on your lips or mine because we don't know what we're doing. We just don't. Saul is saying, my will be done. And the more he says it, the more things fall apart. And the more they fall apart, the louder he screams it like a little child. And the louder he screams it, the further he descends into madness. And the more he descends into madness, the more chaos ensues all around him. Meanwhile, David simply says, thy will be done. I would rather be sitting on a hillside with some sheep, but here I am in a cave. And you are doing something Yahweh. That's the only two kinds of people there are. But you're we. Now, I want you to notice, and with this we'll come to the table, God's provision for David the fugitive. When David lacked everything, when he had no food, God provided holy food to feed David. When David lacked a weapon. God provided him a weapon. And which weapon was it? The sword of Goliath. Because David is sitting there fleeing, and what, what weapon does God give to him? The weapon that said, look, you had no chance against this guy, but I slew him. You remember that day, David, when you strode out there naked, as it were, nothing to stand against Goliath, and there you were, and you slew him. And I'm providing you that sword as a reminder that I delivered you then, I'll deliver you now. God provided Gad the prophet and Abiathar the priest that will serve David throughout his reign. Saul is bereft of the word of God because he's run off every prophet and killed all the priests. David has the only remaining priest in all of Israel who will keep seeking the Lord for him, and he's got Gad the prophet saying it's time to pick up and move because God is saying Saul's going to come after you. And we'll see as David keeps fleeing, they are there to tell David what to do time and time again. The motley crew with David is going to become his mighty men who are going to faithfully serve him throughout all of his reign, doing this for David and for God's people. And ultimately what David is doing here is he's learning in the stronghold that God is his real stronghold. Psalm 18. In you, uh, this is verses one and two. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And if you read in the Psalm where you can look up one of the Psalms, I think it's, it's Psalm 52 or 56 or 57 in there, he writes a Psalm about Doeg. And the word about Doeg is you refuse to make God your stronghold. But David says, I've learned God is my stronghold. God is watching over me. And the final thing is, in the wilderness, David is relearning that God spreads a table in the wilderness for those who are his people, and he does it in the presence of their enemies. And so what we're going to do is, we're going to come to the table. And very simply, I want to encourage us to come here and confess. If we're playing the game of thrones, don't be the kind of person to whom God shakes his head and says, 
okay, your will be done. As friends, in eternity, we certainly don't want that. But you and I don't want it now because our will leads us to trouble. It's all it ever does. If we've been doing that, come and confess. Simply say, God, this is what I've been doing, and I want to stop that. I want to turn from it. But secondly, I want to encourage us to come and receive refreshment for our own times in the wilderness. You may be in a wilderness right now. If not, your wilderness is awaiting. God is carving out caves for you right now. Okay? But I want you to understand that's not a threat. It's a promise. Because in the wilderness, we learn that God is our stronghold. And in the wilderness, we learn that God can spread a table. Israel asked, we read in Psalm 78, this is what Jesus referenced in the I am the true bread. Israel said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And the answer was quail and manna, so much they couldn't even eat it. Because here's good news, God can spread a table in the wilderness. So this morning we're gonna come. If you are a guest, you are welcome to come to this table with us. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a table God spreads for his people. And that means you say, thy will be done. More important to me than anything is that Jesus Christ has lived for me. He has died for me. He has raised for me. He is interceding for me at the right hand of God because I have nothing to offer except my sin. If you believe that, please eat with us. For what I received from the Lord... I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we thank you that you are a God who can spread a table for us in the wilderness. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning to receive and to feast at the table you have prepared. In Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, uh, please hold on to them. We will take them together in a couple of moments. And I encourage you, if there is an area where you've been playing the Game of Thrones, offer your unconditional surrender. If there are areas where uh, you're feeling despondent, receive refreshment from the Lord. And we will take together in just a couple of moments. Oh, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Father, we hold this bread because we are those who willingly chose to go into the wilderness of our own sin. We sinned in our father Adam. We have sinned in our own choices. We have played the game of thrones. And yet, our God, you were faithful to pursue us you chased us down in our wilderness even at the cost 
of your own son. He was broken that we might be healed. He was crushed that we might be raised and blessed. And so, Father, this morning, we do taste and see that you are good, not only in creating us, but in redeeming us through Jesus Christ. And, Father, in eating, we forsake our own way, and we say fresh and new, not my will, but thine be done. Take and eat. Father, when Israel was in the wilderness, they cried out and asked if you could spread a table, if you could provide for them. And the rock was struck and water flowed out to nourish your people, to slake their very thirst. And Father, Paul tells us that that rock is Christ. And Father, he was struck and the blood flowed and that blood has saved us it has cleansed us. It has secured us for now and for eternity. And Father, when we consider what can wash away our sins, Father, we resound and say nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, that blood is greater than all of our sin. And Father, we ask as your people, we don't want to live in a wilderness of sin. Father, we don't want to act in fear rather than faith. And we pray that the blood that has cleansed us from the penalty of that sin would release us from its power. That, Father, you would meet us by your Holy Spirit as we partake of this cup, and that you would empower us this week to live holy lives before you, Father, that we would live saying, thy will be done, that, Father, we would climb off the throne recognizing it is not ours, it is yours. Father, would you do that because of and by the blood of Christ? So we say thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink the cup. Father, David learned that to live in a cave but to have you with him was to be in the very palace and tent of God. And to be in a desert where you dwelled was to taste and see that the Lord is good and to drink from the rivers of God. And so, Father, this morning we come and we have just taken simple bread and simple juice. But, Father, by your Holy Spirit, just as you turned a cave into the place where David met you, so you turn these simple things into holy food that feeds our soul. Father, I pray this week that you would feed and minister to us in our own wilderness, wherever we are at, that you would strengthen us. And Father, I pray, just as you sent the 400 to David and he was able to lead them, Father, I pray you would send people our way that we might be able to point and say, it may seem like a wilderness, but God is faithful. 
that we would ever be able to point not only ourselves but others to you. Holy Spirit, minister to us through the word and through this table throughout this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for a word of benediction. I'm going to be taking this from the first couple verses of Psalm 20. May God bind this to your soul. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from his holy sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember your worship and may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Through Jesus Christ, go in his peace. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.